Ephesians chapter 4. Go to the end of the chapter, near the end of the chapter, Ephesians 4, 29. Have you ever said something that you wish you hadn't said? Have you ever let words out of your mouth and you really wish that you could take them back? Uh, in our apologies, we say things like, I never should have said that. And if I could take it back, I would take it back. But no matter how eloquently we state that apology, the truth is that those words were still said. And when I'm thinking about myself, rarely have I been sorry for not speaking. But very often, I, I've been sorry when I haven't held my tongue, when I should have held my tongue. If you could retrieve it, you would. And the thing about our words is, those hurtful words, those corrupt words, they're often spoken to the people that are the closest to us, the people we love the most. So it's, I love you, so you get to deal with my mouth. <laughs> it's kind of odd, isn't it? But it's true. Children of the Most High God, just praise him this morning that he gave us this command to protect us, to keep us from the destruction of our words. And praise him today, he's your heavenly father, that, that he gives us forgiveness and that he gives us healing. Because in, in all of the corruption that has proceeded from my mouth, there's never been a time that he hasn't been willing to forgive me and, and take my sin and cast it as far as the east is to the west. So we come to these commands, and, and we thank God for them. They're not to cause us to look at our lives and say, oh, well, I may as well just be a, more of a cuss than I was before. No, we're supposed to say, Lord, thank you for sparing me what you have spared me. Thank you for forgiving me. And in this, we're recognizing that you and I don't have the capacity to forgive in the exact same manner that Jesus does. The word tells us that he forgets our sins. He's all-knowing, but he, he has a way of forgetting our sins. A lot of times there are words spoken, hurtful words, terrible words, and they haven't been forgotten. Maybe they've been forgiven, but they've still been said, haven't they? But we have this God, the one true God, who has delivered to us his command and see his commands for what they are. They're protections. They're good for me. They're good for you. And with those commands come his forgiveness. This passage is still that put on and put off portion of the Bible. And you might think to yourself, are we going to have like eight parts put on, put off? Well, we'll just keep calling it put on and put off until we get out of this section. This is part of what we're supposed to put off. Will you and I continue to act like the old self even though we're saved? The Spirit is telling us through his word that it ought not to be so. So here is the next put off. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. 
So since we've been in these, these verses, this series of sermons, you could call it, we've come as far as point number 17. So point 17 is where we'll start, and that is put off corrupt speech. And corrupt speech comes in many forms. Look at verse 31. Isn't that basically a list of different types of corrupt speech? It certainly is. Our speech comes to our lips because of the way we think. The Bible says this to me and to you. Listen to this. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So we have been studying a lot about the futility of mind, that we shouldn't think like those that don't know God, but we should have this transformation of our minds. And that certainly does affect the way we talk to each other, doesn't it? Corrupt speech, many, many forms. It's not just swearing. It's also being a busybody. It's sowing discord. It is to gossip. It's to belittle. It's to insult. One of the things mentioned here in verse 31 is wrath and anger. A lot of times wrath and anger is expressed actually in blasphemy to God. It has become a norm in our society. And I'm sad to say that even among Christians, speaking God, the title of God, or even the name of God in a way where it's just a filler word or it's an emphasis for anger has gotten to the place now where do we even see it as a corrupt word anymore? It certainly is exactly that. Why would a believer sit on their couch and listen to their own TV as people blaspheme the God that saved them, the God that died for them? Yeah, maybe they're not saying those words, but they're giving their hearty approval. They're, they're paying them to say them. I still can't get over it that our presidents speak of eternal damnation in order to show that they're really angry and disgusted. I used to say, don't you have more class than that? Don't you have a higher vocabulary than that? They speak of hell like it's a joke. We're Christians, and we know that being damned is real. Damnation is the worst thing that can happen to anybody. It breaks God's heart. So when that's used in a way that's just like, now I'm going to make you think that I'm, you know, I'm not quite as square as you thought I was, or I'm tough, or whatever it's used for. It's, it's serious. When we pray for the lost, we're praying that they won't be damned. We're praying that they won't be condemned by their sin, but that they would re receive the forgiveness of Jesus. Hell is real. God, keep us from talking like it's not, because it is. Other corrupt speech. I do see the wrath and I see the anger expressed in how we, we try to do that. And there's many other ways it happens other than blasphemy, but it's certainly prevalent. And it is true. You're around it a lot. You hear it a lot. It ends up coming to your mind, coming into your heart, and then coming out of your lips. Let's look at bitterness and evil speaking. They're listed for us in this verse 31 and even back in 29. Evil speaking. And then it says malice at the end. What is malice? It's ill intent. It's whenever... Now, we're not to have ill intent in our hearts, but we're also to not speak in a way where we don't want what is good for people. 
being a busybody. That's being corrupt in our words. Mind your own business. That's actually a Bible verse. You can look it up. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11. That we're not supposed to be meddling in other people's business. True or not true, if it's, why is it my business, right? A lot of damage is done when we meddle. When it comes to being a busybody or a gossip. Think about this. You run across somebody who's a real potty mouth. And then, do you wonder to yourself, do they even realize what they're saying? Or is that just the way they talk now and they're, they're numb? It's become so normal that they don't even realize that they're being profane. Well, the same thing is true for a busybody. A busybody can be very self-deceived, not seeing that they're a busybody at all. They're just so hungry for that info. There is an ill intent there. There's a malice. Oh, what's going on with them? I don't want bad news about my friends. Do you? Like, why is bad news so popular? I certainly don't want to hear bad news about you. Now, if you need help, that's one thing. But just to know it, to be self-deceived, keep us from those corrupt words, to, to want to pass them on. A lot of different forms that corrupt speech takes. We won't cover them all. It's very clear in this passage that those words are destructive. They're not just words. Isn't God making that clear to us? That, that truth or lies or attitudes are spoken in those words. And even if you don't believe God's word this morning, and I, I hope that you do, of course, don't words hurt you when they're spoken by certain people? So they're not just words. They're, they're powerful. The Proverbs say a lot about words. You could go through, and, and in my Bible, I, I went through and I put a T by all of the verses that are about the tongue and just worked my way through the whole, just read Proverbs, looking for the tongue, looking for speech, looking for words. So I've got my little key on the side, and there's just T's all over in Proverbs. Watch what you say. And we'll get into why it's so important, aside from the fact that it's hurtful because it's in these verses. I'll read you a couple of Proverbs. Proverbs eleven nine, 9. With his mouth, the godless man will destroy his neighbor. But by knowledge, the righteous are delivered. Proverbs 15, 4. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. So don't we also get the flip side of the corrupt word in verse 29? We do. We're not to put on, but put off corrupt speech. And we're to put on a speech that is edifying, that builds up. We are to comment in a way that is constructive. That's what edifying is. To build up one another, to strengthen one another, that it, might, that it may impart grace. So our speech, the word tells us, is to be seasoned with grace. And here it says, the point of talking is that others around us would more fully experience the grace of God. Now, is grace, does grace ever correct? Does grace ever rebuke? It does. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." Grace is, when you deliver the grace of God through your words, there's an element there of correction and even rebuke at times. But there's also a great comfort because God's unmerited favor is illustrated through what we say. Yes, we're to gauge what we live and, and, 
and what we do by, has Jesus taught me this? But this is another one. Is it an edifying word? If it is not, then it should not be spoken. And boy, do we need a lot of work in that area. So at times there will be the confronting, there will be the correcting. I reason in my mind and I hear from others often, well, what I said was true. (laughs) So I go to the word, speaking the truth in love. If it was true, did you speak it out of love, out of restoration? Oh no, but it was true, right? (laughs) If you have a smart mouth, and some of you do, realize that about yourself and say, I'm, I'm built by God to use my life for his glory. And, and I can either be really cutting or I can be very comforting. I, I can either be really, really destructive or I can offer words of healing. And God does that amazing transformation in our lives as we put on and put off. Some of you have known me since I was a teenager, I think, and, and, and you knew me in my 20s, and I'm going to be 50 this year, and I'm just telling you, and this is genuine, thank you for not writing me off, but for illustrating forgiveness, because I have spoken some very cutting and insulting things in my life. Even, even to some of you, even fairly recently, actually. But the fact that we would be able to forgive one another, and I think a part of that is, is you, you see the growth in somebody, and you're saying, that, that's got to be the Lord. And that's what he does in us. It takes a long time sometimes, a lot longer than I want it to take, than you want it to take, but it's this putting off of corrupt speech and putting on the words that build up. To think that that now, and for a long time, actually, I've been able to use words to build up. I'm kind of wondering, has the scale, not that I'm saved by the good verses, but is, has, the tail, has the scale tipped yet? And if there was a scale of Eddie's words, are there more, a lot more edifying than destructive? Uh, I'm not sure, so I'm just going to keep adif- adding to the edifying, right? Because that's what the Lord has called us to do, to put that off and to put on the new man, the new self, who is creating in the image of his Savior. 17, put off corrupt speech. 18, put off grieving the Holy Spirit. Our speech can grieve the Holy Spirit. Isn't that what the Bible is saying? Yes, there's a lot of destruction in our relationships and even in our own lives because of the corrupt words that we speak. And I do know that there are many ways that we can grieve the Spirit But here, in the middle of these two verses, 29 and 31, we have another result of corrupt speech that's directly tied to God himself. That it grieves God when we speak in in a manner that's destructive. We often think, oh, God knows everything. He just looks on at us and he's bored. Not at all. The Bible says here that he is sad, that he is He is weeping, literally, when we slander, when we gossip, when we meddle, when we manipulate. Our words hurt God. My my understanding of the Lord is, 
always getting altered to what is right in his word. Does it do that for you too? And I'm, I just think of him as being too disconnected way too many times. And to know that what I say can grieve the heart of God if it's not a word that's fitly spoken, if it's not a word that meets the need of the moment, that God himself, that the Holy Spirit is grieved. The Holy Spirit is a person. That used to mix me up when I was a kid. He's not a human being. He's a person, not a force. He's not just an extension of Father God. He is a distinct person with a personalized mission and personalized emotions. That's what the Bible is saying here. And the Spirit of God who dwells in you because you're a Christian is grieved if you speak words that are corrupt, if you speak with malice or ill intent or or wrath. That is arresting to me, to know that God is sharing his heart, what the Holy Spirit is going through. And I know that we share emotions with each other, and sometimes it's even hard to say the hurt that comes from the words. And you have to tell somebody, you hurt me badly. This is the Lord telling me that I hurt him when I speak in a corrupt manner. Look at this. We can literally be pushing away the one who gives us the power to change. Because none of us can have renewed speech and renewed hearts apart from the Spirit of God. We don't have the ability to walk in that newness of life without Him. And then if we're grieving the Holy Spirit, we're pushing away the very one who empowers us to be new creations. Put off grieving the Holy Spirit. Understand that corrupt speech has that effect on God. The Holy Spirit secured your salvation. Isn't that what the word says here? Jesus saved you and the Spirit sealed you. He secured your salvation. So we should be gravely concerned with anything that grieves him, shouldn't we? That's why the word puts it here so clearly, right in the middle in verse 30, telling us, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. He's the one who sealed you. Is this truth about corrupt words and the grieving of the Holy Spirit for you? If it is, stop gossiping in God's name. Have you lied to yourself about your motives? Is it cloaked under the excuse of prayer or discipleship or counseling? And really, it gets spread to others. That busybody behavior, it grieves the Holy Spirit. Are you insulting? Insulting others saying, well, it's the truth. We have the reminder from the word. Speak the truth in love. It grieves God when we don't. Have you been a blasphemer? Justifying it, saying it's just words. Well, according to God, they're not just mere words. They're not just mere sounds. There are some that are sacred. We thank you, Lord, for giving us given us these truths about our, our own lives, about our own lips. 32, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God and Christ forgave you. Number 19, I know we went into forgiveness in the last study, but number 19 is put on kindness. Who is kind? Jesus is kind. Love is patient. Love is kind, Right? And God is love. It was his kindness that led you to repentance. Jesus is the one who is kind. 
And we are in the process of becoming more and more like him. Therefore, we're becoming more and more kind. When you experience the kindness of God, the goodness of God, it's a life changer, isn't it? It was his kindness that caused you to turn your life to him. It awakened you when you realized how his goodness displayed to you through the cross of Christ. Kindness, it's, it's not complicated, right? It's a smile, it's a greeting, it's a willingness to give, even though you're probably not gonna get anything. Kindness is, is to be understanding, it's to listen. You don't have to know someone at all to be kind to them. You don't have to know them very well to be kind to them. You don't have to agree with their life and their actions to be kind with them. Sometimes these excuses get in there and we're like, well, I, I don't know them. Well, and what's the point? Like, why can't we be kind to somebody that is unknown to us? We don't have to. Well, I don't know how they're living. I, I'm not really sure if, if they're sinning a lot or not. Can't, wasn't the Lord kind to you when you were yet in your sins? Kindness is to be just gushing forth from us. There's this attitude in the world today that to be kind just isn't cool, that you've got to be edgy and obnoxious and a big mouth. Don't listen to the world. Listen to the Lord. He says, be kind to one another. In another put on and put off passage, and many of you have sent me great cross-references from Colossians chapter 3, because Paul preaches to them in the same manner. Colossians 3.12, this is New American Standard. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart, there it is, put on, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. There are times when we need to be reminded what exactly kindness is. We kind of put it in the way like to be nice. Yeah, being nice is good. But what are the practical actions that really are kindness in our lives? There are a lot of three-way conversations, even four-way conversations that happen in the church. And it is so unkind to just ignore, talk over, or start having a side conversation when someone's talking. Nothing says, I don't care. Like, I, they started talking, you just walked away. <laughs> Nothing says, I'm not going to listen to you. Like, you're not worth 30 seconds of my time. And that's not just for those that you love and those that you know well that are, that are a part of us as a church. I mean, that's, some people say that social skills. I just think it's kindness. Now, I do realize that there are those who tell very long stories. And you're thinking to yourself, Eddie, you're never going to get away. <laughs> Maybe you should just ask this person to preach next week and you won't have... I realize there are those people. But can we even hang in there for 30 seconds? And just... A part of that is, is kindness, to show I care enough to listen. Yeah, I don't know you well, but I do care. I, I want to understand. As a family, we practice having three, four, five, and six-way conversations. And we tell the kids, that, that was rude right there. 
They were talking, we were all talking as a family, and you just started your little side conversation, or you interrupted them, or you weren't, like, conversation is kind. It's, you know, I'm sharing my life with you, you're sharing yours with me, and we're listening to each other. Sometimes it's just a greeting, it's, it's that, that giving, that's what God wants. There are many ways to show kindness. Invite somebody to sit with you. You don't have to hold their hand, just say, hey, do you want to sit with us? It, that's a pretty simple act of kindness. Ask somebody how you can pray for them. I mean, especially, I mean, do it all the time. Do it in public, do it with a stranger. But we're at church. If we can't ask one another how we can pray for each other, when is that going to happen after all? I don't know when it's going to happen. You say, is there something I could pray for you about this week? something I can thank God for with you this week. That, that's kindness. Send somebody a note. It's pretty easy to send notes these days, right? One of my friends, she, she sends me uh, just a note in the mail sometimes, and it's, it's better because it's in the mail and because it looks nice, I admit that. But it's just, it's just kindness among God's people. And every time I get one, I'm like, yeah, this is, this is great. This is kindness, it's not random acts of kindness, it's intentional acts of kindness. Because isn't it true that they don't happen unless we are intentional about our behavior? And we're not saying like, how am I going to greet? How am I going to reach out? How am I going to show that I really am putting on Jesus by putting on kindness? It's the kindness of the Lord that drew you. Should not the body of Christ have the kindness of God alive in it, in us, so that the unbelieving would be drawn to him? I, I, I want to teach the Bible accurately and powerfully and truthfully, but if someone comes to this place and they hear a message that is on or persuasive or established in the truth and people aren't kind to them, don't the actions speak louder than the words? You said, yes, they did. Yes, deliver the truth. That's one gift. But the kindness of the Lord, put on kindness, the kindness of Jesus for one another. Number 20, put on a tender heart. Ooh, this is a hard one for me because I'm kind of hard-hearted. Put on a tender heart. We often think of a tender heart as a tender heart towards God, and that is extremely important. We should have soft hearts towards the Lord so that we can hear him and we can be ready for what he has to say. But what is this about? This is about a tender heart towards one another, right? That's the command here. This tender heartedness is very similar to being compassionate. Put on Jesus. This is a characteristic of the Lord. It's a characteristic of Christ. Matthew 14, 14 said this, says this, and when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude and he was moved with compassion for them. Jesus looked at the people. And as he saw them, he wasn't full of disdain. He wasn't full of disgust. He looked at the people and he was compassionate. His heart went out to them. He had a soft heart towards them. And then Jesus' soft heart resulted in actions, right? He healed, if you go on in Matthew chapter 14, and he fed them with the loaves and the fishes, his tender heart, and then his actions of love. But it started with a tender heart. He was moved with compassion. 
the perfect Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, that work, we get a window into Jesus's heart right there. And then we get to see Jesus's actions, a tender heart towards people. Carry out your calling compassionately. Carry out your gift in a tender-hearted manner. Serve the Savior. Yes, it's for him first, but with a tender heart for his people. Jesus even wept with Mary and Martha. He didn't say, buck up, your brother's going to rise from the dead. What's wrong with you, you bunch of sissies? Why are you crying? He didn't do that. He wept with them, not because Lazarus was gone, because Jesus knew that Lazarus would be raised from the dead, but he, he grieved with them. He was mourning with those who mourned. He was tender-hearted. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the one, he's the high priest, who sympathizes with every weakness. Now, we won't be able to sympathize with everyone's weaknesses. In fact, sometimes that's just an exercise in futility when we're trying to identify with everybody and everything that they're going through. Instead, we know the one who sympathizes with their weaknesses. And this is the attitude. This is the hope. I don't know it all. I don't know what you're going through. But that doesn't mean that I can't be tenderhearted towards you. In fact, since I don't know what you're going through, that should make me even more tenderhearted to say, I don't know what you brought here today. I don't know what's in your, in your mind, in your heart. I don't know what kept you awake last night. I don't know what strain in your relationship or what health problem you're going through or what kind of brokenness you're dealing with. But because I don't know, and since I don't know all of that, not even close to all of it, I must be tenderhearted and say, I'm not the only one who has stuff going on in my life. Let my heart go out to people and not just assume. It's common in the church for people to think that their personal problems are paramount. And that selfishness steals our tender hearts towards others. When we think our personal problems are just bigger than anything, we don't see that there are people around us, all around us, that are struggling in far greater ways. When we're focused on ourselves, we're not tender-hearted. We're not compassionate. And then such a person's world just gets smaller and smaller. So I say to you, and I say to myself, don't be caught up in the trial of having a cold and be unaware that the person next to you has cancer. Don't be caught up in the trial of remodeling your house and there's someone very near you who's just hoping to have a roof over their head. Don't be caught up in the trial of dealing with your parents and be unaware that the person next to you was abandoned by their parents. Tenderheartedness isn't all about awareness. It's about admitting that we don't know and we don't see, and therefore, let us be moved to compassion for all that's going on in each other's lives. Are you tenderhearted towards those who don't have a believing spouse? Now, marriage can be difficult. It doesn't have to be difficult. But when there's somebody who's, who's struggling, sometimes I do give the reminder, isn't it amazing? Isn't it awesome? Don't you thank God that you're married to a believer? Yeah, but they're not as sanctified as I'd like them to be. They're, they're saved, maybe. And just earlier, I was talking to somebody who 
who's struggling because the person they're married to has a totally different view of everything because they haven't been saved. Do you have tender hearts towards kids that don't have believing parents? I spoke shortly last week about just how it's such a privilege to be able to teach those kids because some of them, even quite a few of them, don't have believing parents. And they come into your class and you get to share the love of God with them. And, and when my kids complain, sometimes like, you don't, you don't know what you've got. Have a tender heart towards them. How about a tender heart towards those that are hurting physically? You know, when we're feeling good, we just think, well, I'm feeling good. Everybody else is probably feeling good. And they're bringing their ailments and the potential anxiety that comes from, from being sick and, and struggling. Are we tenderhearted? Are we even tenderhearted towards those that are entangled in sin? Or are we like, hey, get yourself out of that mess? Because when we're ensnared by a sin, it's, it's bad. And people need the tender heart of God extended to them through us. Are you tenderhearted towards those who are prone to give excuses? Those are the hardest people for me. Like they're just full of excuses about why they, they can't do this, they can't do that. And then I'm not that tenderhearted. It doesn't mean I need to be permissive or passive. I'm just like, man, when are you going to stop being such a wimp? And just, I should feel sorry for them in a way that moves me to compassion and say, no, I've got to be tenderhearted towards that person. The tender heart of Jesus. Yes, he speaks the truth in love. Praise the Lord that you do that for us. But that tender heart, that compassion, it is to be towards this world. I know as I look on at the unbelieving that they have an agenda and that they're twisted and perverted and that they don't know right, they don't know wrong, and they're after those who they perceive as wrong. But how often do I have compassion on them compared to feeling vindictive? And that's covered here too. It's, it's, I, that, I'm not supposed to express my wrath in that way. How often does compassion come into play there with those that I know are terribly off course? And worse yet, they're, they're pouring out all of that sin on our society and, and bringing it in and say, do I have compassion on them? It doesn't mean I'm spineless. It doesn't mean I won't stand for the truth. That tender heartedness. How can we do this? How can we be tenderhearted? How can we not be bitter? <laughs> Covered that a little bit in the last session. How can we be forgiving and not full of grudges? How can we be soft instead of calloused? That we would have a sweetness to us instead of, of, of being bitter. How can that happen? Wasn't well, it given to us? right here in the Word of God? It's the love of Jesus. It's the display of Jesus' love. The children of Israel had crossed over the Red Sea. They were super excited. They sang a song that said, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed victoriously. The horse and the rider thrown into the sea. They had just seen the Egyptians swallowed up by the Red Sea. An amazing victory, obviously provided to them by the Lord. They get to the other side of the Red Sea, and they're in the wilderness for three days and found no water. 
So they go from a very high, very thankful situation, a time of song, to a very low situation. Three days with no water. We're going to die tomorrow is what's happening. They get to Mara, and there's water. But the waters of Mara are bitter. And what do they do? They start grumbling. Some corrupt speech, some complaining starts coming out of their mouths. They say to Moses, you can read about this later in Exodus 15 if you want to, what are we going to drink? We have no water. Now we have water. And, and it's, it's bitter. That's what Mara means, bitter waters. They cried to the Lord. They cried out to God. And right now, as I read and study this passage about put on and put off, that's what I'm doing. I'm crying out to God. Oh, Lord, I really need to put off the old man. And I really need to put on you, Jesus. When they cried out to the Lord, it says this, that the Lord showed Moses a tree, a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. We get the same principle here in the, in the word of God. Jesus, the cross of Christ, he died on the tree for your sins. When the cross comes into your life, when the cross of Jesus is what you're about, then and only then can you have sweet words instead of bitter words. All the difference in the world, right? Then and only then can you put on kindness instead of malice. Unless you've experienced how Jesus came to you with the cross and then defeated death on your behalf by rising from the grave. So look at 5, Ephesians 5, 1. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Not really a, a God-given chapter break here. This is a, the same stuff, the same way that God forgave you, forgive others. And then he reminds us here at the top of chapter five that Christ loved us and gave himself for us. The cross of Christ makes all the difference and takes our bitterness, the bitterness of our sin, and gives us sweet salvation. And then the word tells us that we're to imitate Jesus and his fragrant offering. Consider the cross when you, when you go to put off and put on. Powered by the Spirit, considering the cross. Even as Jesus hung on the cross, he had a tender heart for those who executed him. He said, Father, forgive them. Didn't he? He gave himself for me and for you. And now he is saying, walk in this love. Do you know why it says walk in love and then it says that it's Christ's love? Because our love for each other will fizzle out. Mine fizzles out really fast. I can't be that kind, tender-hearted person. I'll, I'll be that person of malice. I'll be that person of destruction with my words even going back into all the other put-ons and put-offs. But in Jesus, his love endures. Our love fizzles out, his love endures, and the word is telling you and me to walk in that love towards one another. We're going to sing these words in the, in the verse of this song. It says, Consecrate me now for thy service, Lord. 
That's like sanctify. That's like make me different, Lord. I belong to you. Consecrate me now for thy service, Lord, by the power of grace divine. Divine grace imparted to us so that we're empowered to be consecrated for the Lord. Oh, Lord, we tell you from the very start right now, before we sing this, this last song, this final song, that we belong to you. Lord, because we belong to you, we, we want to depart from iniquity. We want you to be the one that we're reminded of, the one that we live in. Give us that longing, I pray.